0: a DIY manual for the construction of stories by Steve Almond, available from Zando. Go get your copy right now, wherever you buy books. Hey, you guys. Today's episode is brought to you by Storybound. I'm very excited to introduce you to this podcast. Storybound is a radio theater program designed for the podcast age. It's hosted by Jude Brewer, and it features the voices of today's top literary icons reading their essays, poems, and fiction. Season 1 stories include readings from writers like Mitch Albom, Lydia Yuknovich, Adele Waldman, Deke Shabasu, Nathan Hill, Caitlin Doughty, Mitchell S. Jackson, and more. And each episode is paired with a talented musician who provides the score. At its heart, Storybound is a storytelling podcast. It's for people who enjoy the fiction podcast universe and for those who enjoy the kinds of deep human stories featured on shows like The Moth or This American Life. The New York Times calls Storybound, quote, a private reading just for you. The show is a collaboration between the Podglomerate Podcast Network and LitHub Radio. Subscribe and listen to Storybound. And enjoy the stories of literary icons from around the world. Storybound, available today on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, or wherever you listen to your favorite shows. Hey everybody, how are you? Welcome to the Other People Podcast. I'm Brad Listy. And I'm standing here in Los Angeles, if you can believe that. I hope you're well, wherever you are on planet Earth. My guest today is uh, Elaine Kahn, and she is a poet. I have yet another poet on the program. Over the past few weeks, I have featured several poets. It's an accident of fate. It's nothing I orchestrated, but I'm very pleased about it. Elaine Kahn has a new collection out from Soft Skull. It is called Romance or the End. And I had a delightful time meeting her and talking with her at length. And you're going to hear that in just a moment. I do have some mail from a listener. A listener named Lyle. He writes to me, Hi Brad, I've been listening to your show for the last year or year and a half, and I really appreciate what you do. What made me decide that I should finally write to you was during episode 618 with poet Milo Martin. You guys talked at some length about your MFA program experience at USC. I know that I've heard you talk about your MFA on the show before, but I never realized that you studied under one of my all-time favorite writers, Cubby Selby. I'm curious if you have any good Cubby stories or generally just any thoughts, memories, or or feelings about him. I'm very curious to hear what your personal experience was like with him. I hope you're having a good day. Best Lyle. So uh, thank you, Lyle. I do have some memories of Cubby Selby. This is uh, Hubert Selby that we're referring to. Hubert Selby Jr. is his uh, writerly name. Cubby is the name that he was sort of known by. Friends, students, everybody called him Cubby. That was his nickname. And uh, for me, at the time in my life that I was at, when I was getting my MFA, meeting a guy like uh, Cubby Selby was uh, very thrilling to me because... He was somebody who had done it. He had lived uh, the life of a writer. He was up in age. He would come to class uh, with his oxygen tanks. He had tubes, you know, going into his nose. He had trouble breathing. I think he had... uh, What was it? I'm going to forget the name of the uh, illness that he had got, like in the Merchant Marine. And then he had to have some of his lung removed. What was it? Anyway, uh, he had lived a life, you know. And he was uh pretty sharp still in those days, uh, even though it was towards the very end of his life, and uh, had a great sense of humor, very gentle guy. From what I gather, he wasn't always so gentle, um, not only as a human being, but as a teacher. I think in uh, you know, as he got up in age, he sort of softened a bit, but he was uh he was just a lot of fun. he was game, he was great in workshop. Um, he tended to give good advice when he gave it, but he wasn't very heavy-handed about it. And I think that, uh, you know, here's a little tidbit. like uh, He used to say that he was a frustrated preacher. And I think that's true. If you ever saw him read, he was an outstanding performer of his own work, and he could be incredibly emotional when he was doing it. And, uh, I think that he had, um, been in the recovery community for a long time and was sort of practiced at standing up in front of people and, um, testifying. It was incredible. So the first time I ever saw Cubby Selby was at an event for the, uh, the MFA program. This was uh, before I even started going to school there. I went and saw him read and it was uh, pretty electrifying. I know uh, another thing that I uh, recall him saying in class was that he hated the phrase uh, "have a nice day" because <laughs> he was kind of a cranky guy. You know, he was like, "This is you know, this is America's problem. We all want to have things. What about give a nice day?" So it was. I think that's that's what he had on his uh, voicemail, if I recall correctly. He would tell people to give a nice day. And I kept that. And you know what? To this very day, that's what I say to my daughter before she goes to school. So there you go with uh, some memories of Cubby Selby. He was a good one. And a really gentle, uh, sweet guy in the time that I knew him. So, uh, I thought like, you know, in keeping with uh recent tradition that I would have Elaine Kahn read some poems for you. I'm going to share one of those poems with you now, uh, here at the top of the show. And then you'll hear her read another poem from her new collection, uh, romance or the end at the end of the show, once we finish the interview. So the first poem that I'm going to have her do or that she would like to do, you know what I mean? She chose it. I didn't choose it. I'm not like directing her to read certain poems. It's not how I operate here. But the first poem you're going to hear from Elaine Kahn is called There is Nothing More to Life Than This. That's the name of the poem. There is nothing more to life than this. And the collection, one more time, is called Romance or the End. So here she is. This is Elaine Kahn. Sickness
1: is a kind of clarity. It makes you feel afraid and love to be alive. It interests me to be afraid. My claim is on the absolute. I never wanted to be free. Only to be nothing. And to love, to be alive. Just like the French, my beauty's nourished by its own disgrace. I love when it's disgusting. Jealously, I wash myself. The sacrament of being held without affection. My only purity is in my failure to be satisfied. We will never comprehend this, nor what hinders you. The horror I confess. I cannot have you without being, and you know what I'd prefer.
0: Hey everybody, if you are a writer or an aspiring writer, or if you just love literature, I have a book for you. It's called Truth is the Arrow, Mercy is the Bow Okay. So that is Elaine Kahn, and her new collection again is called Romance or the End, available from Soft Skull Press. I forgot to mention earlier that if you want to write to me, my address, my email address is letters at otherppl.com if you uh, have something that you would like to say to me. I also want to take a moment to give a shout out to uh, one of the program's sponsors today, Better Help Online. Is there something out there or in there that is interfering with your happiness or is preventing you from achieving your goals? BetterHelp Online Counseling is there for you. If you use BetterHelp Online Counseling, you can connect with a professional counselor in a safe and private online environment. It's convenient and it's easy to do. You can now get help on your own time and at your own pace, and you can schedule secure video or phone sessions, plus chat and text with your therapist. These are licensed professional counselors who are specialized in things like depression, stress, anxiety, relationships, sleep troubles, trauma, anger, family conflicts, LGBTQ matters, grief, self-esteem, you name it. Anything you share with your therapist is confidential. And if you're not happy with your experience for any reason, you can request a new counselor or therapist at no additional charge. There are 3,000 licensed therapists across all 50 states. This service is available worldwide. And again, there are four communication modes text, chat, phone, and video. You can start communicating with a therapist in under 24 hours. BetterHelp Online is available on desktop, mobile, Android, and iOS apps. You can schedule your sessions on a weekly basis unless your therapist schedules more. Again, broad expertise exists in this network and it may not be locally available in many areas so better help online can step in where there might be a lack in your particular neck of the woods financial aid is available for those who qualify this is secure this is convenient this is professional and this is affordable it's also not a crisis line just fyi and best of all there is an offer right now for listeners of this program uh other people listeners get ten percent off your first month with the discount code Other People. That's other PPL. That's the discount code, other PPL. So if you need a little help, why not get started today? Hell, I might do it. Go to head go to uh, betterhelp.com slash other people. Again, that's betterhelp.com slash other people. That's slash other PPL. You know what I mean? You know how the show is spelled, right? Simply fill out a questionnaire to help them assess your needs and get matched with a counselor you will love. That's betterhelp.com slash other PPL. Okay? So uh let's get on with the program. My conversation with Elaine Kahn, she is uh originally from the Midwest. So we have that in common and uh she is a wonderful poet and I had a great time talking with her. Here she is, folks. This is Elaine Kahn, and her uh, new collection, One More Time, available now from Soft Skull, is called Romance or the End.
1: Well, born in Evanston and raised in Northfield.
0: Are, are your parents academics? Is this Northwestern? or
1: No. My mom's a painter. and well, Actually, my stepdad's an academic. My, my family lives in Providence now. My stepdad's a physicist, and he teaches at Brown. Oh, really? Yeah. Yeah, Yeah, he's actually a particle physicist and he also works at the Super Collider in Switzerland. So I got to go there before. Oh my God. (laughs) It's like an old high school. It's actually not, it's not like high tech seeming at all, but there's a really good. uh, What, in Switzerland? Yeah. It's like so run. It just it like seems like a high school from the 80s. Like, I
0: can't think of a world more foreign to me like than to consider what it's like to be like a particle physicist and like I, I, I don't even know where to begin with that.
1: I don't either. but he also likes my poetry, so
0: that's nice. <laughs> that's my- <laughs> He's a we Renaissance man.
1: He is. he is. I have a really great picture of him from the science March after Trump was elected, holding this sign that said says may the force be with you particle <laughs> physicist,
0: so he seems like a sweet nerd, oh yeah he 's wonderful, he's you the like best. him, yeah, you have because sometimes stepdad it 's not like a good thing, but he 's the best he 's yeah. the best, yeah, and then what about biological dad
1: he 's a lawyer we 're not as close
0: not as cl- so closer with stepdad <laughs> yeah, okay, yeah, so you grew up in uh, Evanston, Illinois, mm-hmm. in the uh, the Midwest, where yes. I have recently spent uh, a good bit of time over mm-hmm. the holidays and mm-hmm. everything. I split my childhood between Milwaukee and Indianapolis. Okay. Uh, I love, I I prefer Milwaukee.
1: They're very different flavors of the Midwest. Those are like two kind of poles, I would say. I feel like Indiana is almost
0: Southern. Yeah, Yeah. I've said this before on the show. That's interesting that you noticed that too.
1: Yeah. I mean, the Midwest, it has, it's in the middle and it has like a whole range. You know, it's like you get a, far north and it's almost like canada but even southern illinois feels like the south
0: well i was just in wisconsin and you know it's also the land of my early youth which Mm -hmm. i think is just more idealized or it seems like less less flawed or more pure somehow you don't have all the weight of adolescence and encroaching adulthood it's like when childhood was still magical or whatever yeah but it's also so beautiful
1: it i agree
0: I think Wisconsin's I really pretty, and uh, my wife is from Minnesota, and we go up there, and it's a very similar aesthetic, Yeah, and I just adore it. I think it's uh, underrated.
1: I, I mean, I'm preaching to the choir here. Okay. I went to summer camp in Minnesota, and yeah, I mean, I, I love the whole Midwest. Like, in the summer, the lakes, there's just nothing like it to me. I miss, I miss it a lot. I don't go back very often, but I'd love to.
0: And and, yeah, and your mom and your stepdad live in Providence. Yeah,
1: which I've I've actually come to really love Providence and Rhode Island as well, but
0: I don't think I've ever been to Providence or like driven. Um, maybe I drove through.
1: It's it's a nice little city and Rhode Island in general because there's so much coastline, but it's really it's not like I don't know, it's not like a fancy state, <laughs> so it's just pretty accessible and I yeah I really. I have come to really love it.
0: How many states are fancy though? Really? At the end of the day, that's,
1: that's actually true.
0: I mean, I guess California Cal- <laughs> is California fancy though.
1: A lot of it is
0: maybe not all of it. Maybe like the perception of it is like as yeah. fancy, but I think like on the ground here, yeah, sometimes I'm like, I oh, don't I'm not feeling very fancy.
1: California's expensive. Yeah. Rhode Island's not expensive.
0: That's maybe the yeah. distinction yeah. between fancy and yeah. not fancy. Um, so Elaine Kahn, Mm-hmm. Like uh, I was going to make a joke about Shaka Khan in relation to Shaka Khan. Never heard that one. Never ever.
1: No, nope. no. Yeah, you've
0: heard it many times. I've
1: heard it a lot. Oh, Geng- Genghis was... too.
0: Oh, Genghis, yeah. right? Yeah. But uh, so, what is that? Is that are you Jewish?
1: I'm half Jewish. Yeah.
0: Okay. And uh, did you like you you liked Wisconsin and going to summer camp in Minnesota? Did you like uh, what was it Northfield? You said
1: yeah. Like that's...
0: the suburban existence as yeah. well.
1: No, I did not. You did not. <laughs> I did not like it. I mean, there were nice things about it. It was like a very peaceful place to grow up in a certain way. But I mean, I think a lot of the reason I'm a writer now is because I spent so much time as a kid, you know, reading to avoid having to <laughs> to be in the reality that I that I was in. It was a, I don't know, it was a very small suburb. And my family was pretty, I mean, we're not that weird, but sort of relative to the people around us we were like we raised chickens and my mom rode her bike everywhere and like
0: I ride my bike everywhere I <laughs> am I that weird guy
1: in North well that's actually an interesting thing when I first moved to California I when I first moved to California I moved to the Bay Area and I had this realization where I was like if I had grown up here <laughs> we would have been just like everybody
0: else <laughs> <Right>. <laughs>
1: But in Northfield,
0: like, yeah,
1: yeah, just recycling and like, uh, you know, buying used clothes. And my parents were Democrats It made us uh, outsiders in a certain way. Okay. So it was like
0: conservative suburbs. Definitely. Are you raising chickens now these days?
1: No. um, Although I, I actually would like to, I mean, farm fresh eggs are really good and, Chickens are nice cuz they'll eat all your extra food.
0: I see I had somebody in here. I'm going to blank on the name as I always do, but I she like lives up in Malibu. God damn it. I, I hate when I do this. <laughs> I feel I feel rude, but mm-hmm. you know, I'm uh I'm going uh, prematurely senile. Um the point is, I asked, I was like, "Do you have chickens? You live up in the canyon?" Mm-hmm. You know, and she was like, "Oh, the rats." Like, do chickens attract rats?
1: Um I mean, rats weren't really that much of an issue where I grew up. I can imagine that they would in L.A. Okay. um, But we're, I mean, we had like the winter, which sort of killed everything um, or put everything into hibernation. And I I don't remember having any issues with rats. We had some field mice, but that's not like a problem. And it's not like also they didn't like live in our house they lived What
0: the chickens yeah no you had a coop
1: yeah exactly so it's like it didn't you know there was like a little bit of woods behind our house it didn't really matter what was going on back there i'd
0: have some chickens the thing is i don't eat meat
1: well that's actually what's great about having chickens is you get the the eggs and you get to know that they're treated very humanely
0: okay because this is it like my son eats eggs it's like a long story but Mm -hmm. he's uh, got some disabilities and Uh, neurological, atypical stuff. And so his neurologist is like, you know, you should eat this protein. You know, Mm -hmm. you get all this information. And I'm like, I will feed him wild boar (laughs) that I will kill myself if it will help him. I'm like, I'm not like uh, dogmatic about Uh um, my, you know, plant-based diet or whatever when it comes to him or stuff like that. Um, And. When I go to the store and you're buying eggs, like there are all these options now. And it's like, yeah. I'm always like trying to be as humane as possible. So I'm like, okay, free range is bullshit. You want pastured. Mm-hmm. Pastured are like really expensive.
1: Pasture is, yeah, they're really expensive.
0: But it's like, I'm willing to spend extra yeah. if I know that I'm not doing harm. But even if you buy pastured eggs, don't all the male chickens just get brutalized? They get killed. It's the females they want.
1: I mean, we, well, I mean, we used to get rid of our roosters, but... I don't know. I Otherwise, mean, you
0: got a rooster in your backyard. Yeah,
1: roosters are really aggressive. Um, we would give them to this French woman who owned a restaurant, and she would
0: cook them. Yeah, yeah. But
1: I don't think I don't know. I don't think. I mean, it. You know, I guess it's all relative and depends what you think. But I did, that was not a thing I felt like bad about. You know, the roosters had really nice lives. They got to basically just like have the run of our yard, and then when they got aggressive, they died real fast that was it yeah
0: (laughs) (laughs) maybe i'm overthinking it but i'm like and then it's like i guess it's okay i mean if you're eating an egg it's just like a chicken embryo which is gross to think about for me but like hey
1: it doesn't hurt them, and yeah, you
0: know. there's no pain. No,
1: a- I mean, I, I I like eggs a lot. They're my main source of protein. I the eggs I get now are usually from the farmers market.
0: Did you expect the beginning of this interview to center on poultry?
1: No, <laughs> I didn't. I mean, I'm I'm delighted though. I'll be honest, I have a lot, I have a lot of thoughts about chickens. Uh, yeah, one of the ways that I got made fun of as a little girl was. Uh, my classmates called me chicken lady.
0: Why? Because you had chicken? chicken.
1: This is what I'm saying. Like stuff that like, you know, in Berkeley, it's like, of course, you, you know. No, you get
0: made fun of if you don't have chickens. Exactly.
1: But not in Northfield, Illinois, you know.
0: Did you get made fun of a lot?
1: Yeah, I did, actually. You did? Yeah. Yeah.
0: Did it, but did it bother you as bother yeah. adolescent? Yeah, I hated
1: it. Yeah. No, I was like, I was pretty much freaking out my entire childhood and adolescence because I felt like things were really unfair and like i was really powerless i think it's like i don't know definitely affected me as an adult i have like a pretty hardcore sense of justice
0: and if somebody violates like your sense of justice like what happens do you bring do you drop the hammer
1: (laughs) (laughs) i mean honestly in a certain way i feel like it it's affects me more in terms of how people treat it's bullying i really don't like bullying yeah, if, me neither. if i see people be cruel to someone who i don't know has like less power than them or seems weaker than them it makes me i lose it and if someone's ever you know picks on one of my friends i'm just like i need you to know that i will kill them like i'm just i'm just like so ready it's actually more than i'm like that about myself because i don't I don't feel like vulnerable in that kind of way anymore. Um, But if I get a sense that someone is, yeah, if I see like bullying is the thing that makes me more angry and disgusted than maybe anything else.
0: Yeah. When, when people are like openly cruel, Mm -hmm. that drives me nuts. Yeah. And like, and like kind of getting off on it. You're like, that's the worst. Yeah. Um, Isn't it funny how the experiences of our childhood frame us kind of for life yeah like there, and there's some basic frame or story i think that uh we tell ourselves or at least that's the way it seems to me i'm actually wrestling with this a lot in writing mm-hmm. it's like how well do i even know myself i know what i tell myself and i tell myself like let me give you my story like you were bullied or picked on because you came from a family that had chickens and like recycled. <laughs> oh. <laughs> you know, sorry we're, we're ahead of our time, uh, Northfield, Illinois residents, but, um, you know, I grew up in a Catholic family, and it never made sense to me, Catholicism mm-hmm. didn't. And I tried to express it in my kid way and was sort of punished for it, not harshly, but, like, it was. I was made to feel like my confusion was a transgression. And if I think about my adult life, like, I have remained confused. I think I'm professionally confused. I think what I do on this show is an expression, like, I'm good at being confused, mm-hmm. and I'm comfortable being confused in public.
1: That's, I think that's a great way to be, actually. I'm, I've am always been a person who's a little bit suspicious of certainty. And I actually have, I can counter your story, because my parents were both very staunch atheists. and <laughs> My rebellious phase was becoming Christian, uh. which I... Gotten a bit of trouble for, and it didn't. It didn't last. It, I never actually could get myself to believe in God, but I really wanted to, and my parents were just like, "What?
0: Like, what like what denomination? Like, what were you dabbling in?
1: uh Like, born again? Oh shit! But I never. Like, it was just. I mean, I think the thing that started. It was. You know, it's kind of like a social thing. Like, I don't know if you're familiar with like. Evangelists, but they're really like welcoming, Uh, and they have great snacks. (laughs) Like they have a lot of events, and for someone like me, who is kind of like a lonely weird kid, just kind of having someone being like, you know, come over. There's cheese and crackers. Like we'll be nice (laughs) to you. It's like oh, but yeah, it all ended when I got I got asked to lead like a, a youth retreat, and I had to go and confess to the the people in charge that I didn't believe in God. was <laughs> just like, I, I've just got to say this before we go. And it was, that was it. Yeah. That was like the end of my
0: confession is so fucking weird.
1: Yeah. Well, I just, I just realized it was like, I can't, you know, I've been enjoying, you know, singing with you all and like, you know, eating your salami slices, but <laughs> but I have, I can't really uh, teach anybody about how to be a better follower of Christ. Cause I don't believe in him. So yeah. But yeah, that was like, I literally, that was the end of religion for me. Although I'm still, it was a definitely a formative experience. Like I write about God a lot still, because I think it's something that like, yeah, that experience of like really wishing I could sort of just, just believe in some design, um, but not being able to was, yeah, I think it affected me a lot.
0: Yeah. You know, I think about my confession. I remember like as a Catholic, I had to like, there was like an actual ceremony where you did your first confession. And I remember, and you do it in front of the, in front of people, like you have to march up there in front of the priest. So fucking weird. And the only thing I could think, because the the priest was like, tell me, son, what are your sins or whatever? This is a true story. I'm embarrassed as I (laughs) tell it. But the thing that I confessed for, and I think I'm like, what, in third grade? And the thing that I was, I don't know, you know, it was, I was, I was elementary age and the thing that I confess for, I had done when I was probably like six, like five or six years old. And I was with some buddies in my neighborhood and there was a dog in a chain link enclosure, like a black lab Mm -hmm. at my neighbor's house. And we were like saying hi to it. And then my buddy like dared me to pee on it. Oh my God! And I peed, I peed <laughs> on the dog. I felt so. <laughs> oh no! And the lady who owned the dog oh was no. like in her kitchen doing dishes and like saw me pee on her dog, <laughs> and called my mom and I had to like go over there and ring her doorbell and be like, "I'm sorry, I peed on your dog."
1: That's actually kind of beautiful, though.
0: God damn! I'm I mean, just remembering this, and then I like told the priest I was like I peed on the dog. Oh my God! <laughs> I. Uh,
1: it seems like, I don't know, if you're going to I feel like dogs would be like understanding of that in a certain way.
0: I was a kid. Yeah. I like nowadays, I mean I forgive myself. Like, it wasn't yeah. like I, it wasn't like I beat the dog or yeah. something, you, you peed know. Like, on it. I just peed on peed. it. It's you're in <laughs> a sterile. It's. Sterile. <laughs> I'm so I'm blushing for people <laughs> listening. It's embarrassing to admit you peed on the dog, but <laughs> that's what I did when I was a kid.
1: That's a good story.
0: Yeah. And uh so anyway, it's just yeah, it's very strange the whole ritual of confession. Like I think it's good to confess one's sins, but just the way that it's handled and to put a kid in that situation and to formalize it like that. It's just yeah. like, I felt so, I I just felt so out of place. It mm-hmm. never fit. It was like wearing clothes that didn't fit, yeah. you know? So it's interesting that you were raised without and then gravitated to towards it as like a kind of rebellion. You know, I feel like as kids, the grass is always greener. Like the, the kids of the more conservative religious parents want the hippie parents Mm -hmm. and the kids with the hippie parents want the structure.
1: Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I had structure, but I just, I, my mom just like, I don't know. She's her idea of, um, you know, she used to tell me kind of like, well, you know, when you die, like your body will decompose and your atoms will be used to form other things. And that's beautiful and it just like i wanted more <laughs> i think I, I think that was what i rebelled against i think
0: you might get it what you might get it get more who knows
1: yeah um, yeah i mean i mean the truth is as an adult i actually do think that's a really nice thing to believe in and i, I it doesn't like that doesn't seem meaningless to me but as a kid it just like i don't know it's you know i think Part of growing up is kind of like you have to come to terms with what it means to be alive and to be mortal and to be part of this giant system that's hard to understand. And I was very much looking for for some kind of uh, meaning that was just sort of ready made. And I, I don't know.
0: No, I get it. My, you know, I tried to be. I think I tried to have a similar conversation with my daughter, and I might have messed it up because <laughs> she's like, she's got like a phobia of barfing and dying. And <laughs> she learned at school that Caesar Chavez died in his sleep, oh, and so god. now she goes to bed every night. and She's like, "Please promise me I won't die in my sleep." Please promise me I won't die yeah. in my sleep. And I'm like, "Oh my god." So maybe I'm raising a poet, you know? Oh,
1: I mean, I definitely it started for me with like weird fear of death. That was like a all of a sudden kind of being like. Oh my god, like the world is so unstable, like you just don't know. And that was definitely part of what led me to God. So, but I mean, I I grew out of it. I actually asked my parents recently if they were afraid of dying. That was a
0: And what was their answer?
1: <laughs> um, they said no. They both said that there were things that frustrated them about dying because there's more they wanted to do, but they were like, but I'm not afraid of dying. My stepdad, a number of his siblings have died in the past couple of years. How old are they? My parents? Oh, God, I'm not going to be able to remember. I think my stepdad's 75 and my mom's 70. Okay, yeah. Um, But, yeah, and my stepdad was kind of like, you know, I've seen a bunch of people die at this point. It's actually really peaceful. He's like, it happens slowly and... If, if you're lucky. Yeah. Yeah.
0: I mean that's the thing like I don't think I'm necessarily afraid of dying. I'm afraid of being in pain or like dying some horrible death.
1: Yeah, but that's like you can't really I don't know. That's the kind of thing I feel like there's not really a point in even entertaining it cuz it's like you can't prevent that. Like that's <laughs> like worrying about it only makes it actually like the experience like that's the only way you can ever ensure that you will experience that fear right. is to actually entertain it
0: right well but if you like yeah but if you wind up in a, a hospital or hospice death mm-hmm. modern medicine provided you have access to it these days can mitigate the worst of the pain yeah um, and like you wind out you know most people wind up going out in like a like delauded yeah blaze of glory yeah yeah, <laughs> yeah. yeah. This Um, really
1: went, (laughs) this really went dark. We we
0: start with chickens, (laughs) we move to mortality. Um, But yeah, you know, it's, it's, it's interesting. Um, And it seems like the preoccupations of uh, poets, right? It seems in line with the preoccupations of poets. You have to be considering big stuff. Like I just talked to Matthew Zapruder uh, recently and um, I was trying to describe why I like hanging with poets. Mm -hmm. Like I love poets. And I was saying, like, you know, people go into poetry, don't typically go into it um, to make, like, huge money or to get famous. Though he did counter by saying that, like, poets are getting speaking fees. That I, you know, I don't know if I'm necessarily aware of all this, but some poets are making, I guess, a good living being able to speak. But
1: I don't think very many.
0: Yeah. I mean, I guess it's possible, but it's not not the reason people do it. No.
1: I mean, I don't think. I don't think you'd be if, I mean, if you're like, I'm going into poetry cause I really just want to make a bunch of money. That seems pretty, I, I, I don't know. I think you've been misguided.
0: Right. Well, but I think, I guess like the main point for me is that, um, the people who go into poetry in a serious way and do the work for a lifetime are committed to living their lives deeply mm-hmm. and have a set of priorities that is generally at odds, with what the culture is telling us our priority should be. Mm-hmm. And I think we need these subversive agents and I think we need these deep thinkers and people who are living deeply. Like we've always needed them. Mm-hmm. Um there's something like there's something kind of similar between uh, living a life poetically and living a life of the cloth, actually. Mm -hmm. Um, there's something sort of monastic about it.
1: Yeah. I actually really agree with that, especially, I don't know, like I don't ever really feel like I chose to be a poet. It feels more like something I just couldn't stop doing. And I think that probably is similar to how people who kind of feel like called to, yeah, called to the cloth. I don't even know, you know, called to like serve God for their lives. Um, or it doesn't actually at least for me it it's not like i mean i would I would love if I could you know all of a sudden feel as satisfied by i don't know practicing law as I, as I do by writing a poem, but it's just I just keep writing poems and have you have
0: you always like when did you start?
1: I always have written i mean really badly at first, but it was i don't know I don't know why, but I just always. It's always been kind of a way that I've engaged with the world, like a way that I tried to understand things and come to terms with, with things that I was struggling with. So it's just, you know, it's, it's, not like, it's not like something I ever really feel like I chose exactly. I just kept doing it. I mean, I, yeah, I still, you know, people ask me kind of like, well, you know, when did you decide to become a poet? Or like, how did you become a poet? And I'm like, I have no idea. It just seems, I just kind of, I I can't really even believe that at this point, I mean, through teaching and writing that that's, that is literally what I do and how I live and how I support myself. Um, But it was definitely not a plan. It was not something I aimed for. I just kept doing it and things kept happening. And I kept saying yes to the, to the opportunities before me.
0: That's great. I wish I had. See, I feel, I feel more lost. This is like an extension of my like professional confusion. Um, not not like, not only like am I professionally confused? Like I feel like it's my job to be confused, but I'm also confused about like what I should do professionally. Like what my calling is. Like is this it? I guess I'm a writer. I guess I'm a podcaster. Like you feel clear. Like I'm a poet, and this is what I'm meant to do. Do you feel like a real stark clarity?
1: No, it's just, it's what I do. I don't, it's not as much like what I meant to do. Cause I don't, that's just not really the way I think. It's just, it's just what I do. Um, I I still, I think about doing other things a lot. Being a poet is hard. Yeah. I mean, it's, um, <laughs> uh, there's a, this line I've been tinkering with for a long time. I'm not going to remember it exactly, but it's something like, um, about how I've been, uh, God, what is it? Sort of like crippled by my my need to always be taking a good look at myself. <laughs> um, like just uh, that I, you know, I get, I don't, I do actually get pretty weary of thinking about myself all the time. It's, right. It's like a, it's. I don't always want to do that, um, and um, oh, that's the line I've been infantilized by my need to always taking a good look at myself. Or that's still not exactly, but something like that. Um, but it's it's not. I don't know. It's it's also really unstable. Like I teach, I teach a, like independent poetry workshops through a school I started, but it's it's all very you know you don't know i don't know what will happen next i don't have health care <laughs> like i don't i don't have savings um i'm lucky that my partner has more stable income than me but it's i don't know it's pretty it's been it's been tiring
0: you have to make sacrifices yeah you have to make sacrifices to to live that way and it's got to be so important to you that the sacrifices are worth it um but i get tiring i think yeah. so many people are tired I have to, but that's my hunch anyway. Because, like, it can feel sometimes when you're sort of locked inside yourself and you're preoccupied with uh, taking a good hard look at yourself, Mm -hmm. like you were just saying, to think, like, I'm the only one. Like, everybody else seems to have it figured out and Mm -hmm. I'm fucking tired. But I think, you know, many people are leading lives of quiet desperation uh, when it comes to things like careers and jobs and money and the stresses of how to make it all work in this system. I think it's pervasive. And I think there's a lot of shame associated with it, which keeps people quiet about it. And I also think that it evokes fear in people who might not be struggling as much or discomfort or even disgust. Sometimes people are just annoyed to hear about the travails of people who aren't necessarily, you know, I don't know, um, making it as Mm -hmm. well as some other people, but it's a hard thing to communicate about. And I don't I don't know exactly like my thoughts on it aren't like especially well defined. Um I don't know if I have solutions or like even like the proper diagnosis, but that's my instinct. You know yeah. what I'm saying it's like pointed in that direction and I think about it a lot and chew on it a lot and write about it a lot.
1: Yeah. Yeah, I mean I think it can be threatening to if if you have managed to sort of um grab a sense of safety. I think it can, there is something threatening about seeing other people who are struggling because you kind of realize how close to you that could be, how it's just sort of on the other side. I think that's something you see in a lot of different ways, actually. I think it's one of the reasons there's contempt for, for people who are poor, for people who are homeless, like because you sort of don't want to believe that that's something that could ever happen to you. And so to see that it can, it really, I think it really does just call up this contempt in people sometimes.
0: And I think, too, like, the one of the biggest, like, you know, they, we always hear about, like, uh, extremism in its various forms as, like, a great threat to humanity, mm-hmm. like religious extremism or ideological extremism, in uh, always in other parts of the world, mm-hmm. and how these are a great threat to, like, you know, the mighty mm-hmm. Western democracy, or at least that was the case up until recently. Now I, everything's so upside down, it's hard to parse. But um, I think that inequality is probably almost certainly in my mind a much bigger and more pervasive threat to the order of things because not only you know when you have when you live in a society that's really unequal and you have like we do here in california like increasing levels of homelessness and it's out there in front of you you're seeing human suffering like starkly every day um not only is it something that can cause fear in people because they realize that the threshold between their you know their own lives and this possible kind of existence is maybe thinner than they wish it were but for people who are really removed from it I think it can, can create like a dehumanizing effect.
1: Absolutely. No.
0: These people just need to get their shit together. Like I'm in my Tesla. Like what the fuck is wrong with people?
1: I mean, I think, I think that, I mean, I think that's really fucked up, but I think it's also like definitely a coping mechanism. Like I think it's, and I think it's actually pretty unconscious. Like, but I do, I mean like, you know, in order to walk down the street, I often just walk past many people who very clearly need help. And you know, sort of in order to do that without, you know, being like, oh my God, like, can I help you? There is this like, you know, kind of uh, like coded, like socialized way I have of just, you know, being like, well, that's just a homeless person. And like, I try to, you know, notice that and um, be aware of it. But it's, I I think it's much more a part of how we are than we, when we realize which isn't great
0: yeah you know how people uh, ask you for money or change Mm -hmm. or whatever it is like people have been asking for change for as long as i've been alive yeah and you know we all know that like the minimum wage has been static forever like the median income for uh, uh, americans has been flat while the income for the highest earners has like been like a like a you know a moon rocket Mm -hmm. so there's this great disparity in terms of um prosperity yeah And so the other day there's this guy in the neighborhood who seems like he's mute. Mm -hmm. He doesn't seem like he's wasted. So I'm like, I I try to help, you know, I'm not trying to pat myself on the back, but I'm trying to, I try to like be generous and like if they're taking the money and going to buy booze or drugs and harming themselves, like that's their problem. But if somebody comes to me and is like, Hey, I need help. Like the least I can do is like hand over something if I got it. I try to do that most of the time. Mm-hmm. I'm not always perfect, but I try to do that. And this guy especially, because he like can't talk. Mm-hmm. So I'm like, how does he even get work? Or you know, he, he can't talk. He just points at his mouth. And he's like, I'm hungry. I'm like, oh shit. Oh, God. Yeah. So here's my point. Typically, you give like a dollar or two. Mm-hmm. But like we, ha- like I, you know, people were giving a dollar or two back in like 1979. Yeah, we need to adjust this for inflation. Like, buy the guy a fucking meal is what I was telling myself. Yeah, like give him ten bucks.
1: I mean, also we need to, it you know, needs to not be actually like an individualized transaction. Like, we need to actually change the way that society is structured so that people can have housing, so that people can have food. Like, we have plenty of resources in this country. There's no people who are who are unhoused like it's actually not because there's a housing shortage it's because we've chosen to discard people um and i think that's like it it can't like i don't think the change that will happen will be from you know you and me you know giving 20 bucks here or there i think it has to be something that happens on a structural level right and and i also think even stuff like so let's say the person is going to buy drugs or alcohol like you know people who are houseless like they don't have access to medication a lot of them are people who are suffering and like that can be a way of self-medicating of treating themselves and i don't think it should be as like stigmatized as as it is personally because you just i don't you know like if i was ill and like had no access to treatment or painkillers or whatever like maybe i'd want to get drunk too like that's you know
0: right or you're just freezing your ass off
1: yeah yeah
0: Um, Okay. So I want to shift gears um, and focus on you. (laughs) (laughs) We can try to solve the world's problems, but um, you Midwestern upbringing, chickens, painter mom, particle physicist, stepdad, lawyer, dad, Mm -hmm. siblings, three, three. Yeah. Holy shit. So where are you in the pecking order?
1: I'm second eldest.
0: Okay. Brothers, sisters.
1: I have an older sister and two younger brothers.
0: Okay. Are they uh, artsy? (laughs)
1: Yeah, I think they're all artsy, except for one of my brothers, who he actually still lives in Wisconsin. And he's, um, he's, he's an interesting person. He's a, right now he's getting his PhD in sociology, and simultaneously getting his JD, his law degree, and he's a former uh, MMA champion.
0: (laughs) Wow, yeah. <laughs> he contains multitudes.
1: Yeah, he's really he's really interesting. And then my younger brother, he went he studied art. He's a sculptor. And um, my older sister, she works for um, a, a refugee uh, training program, essentially, and helps give vocational skills to refugees. But she also is very artistic. Most, oh, yeah, I would say everyone in my family is pretty much.
0: That sounds like a good tribe.
1: Yeah, I, I really love my family. You
0: do? Okay, yeah. so yeah. good family. where did you go to college?
1: I went to undergrad at CCAC. Well, now it's CCA, California College of the Arts in Oakland. And I went to grad school at the Writers' Workshop in Iowa.
0: Okay, so how did you wind up in Oakland?
1: <sighs> you know, like most things in my life, it feels a little bit like a mystery. I just... I kind of romanticized California when I was a kid growing up in the Midwest. I used to have pictures of it on my wall, that in Scotland and a few other places. But I just, you know, I grew up very much being like, I want to leave. And I just, I mean, I didn't move out here actually for college. Um, I just kind of decided to move here with a friend. I was 19.
0: So you didn't go straight to college?
1: No, I took two years off.
0: Um, How were your parents about this?
1: Um, I mean, I, I was a, a handful <laughs> back then. I think they were just glad that I wasn't like,
0: I don't know. How how were you a handful? Were you like doing drugs and stuff?
1: Um, uh, I mean, no, not really. I was pretty depressed and just kind of like non-functional. And, um, I, I mean, I had a lot of, I just had a lot of trouble kind of like, figuring out how to live. Um, and then I decided I wanted to move to California. And literally with a friend of mine, we got a U-Haul, which was almost, we had barely anything in it because we didn't have any real possessions. But we just sort of <laughs> knew that you were supposed to like, you move with a U-Haul. So we just like...
0: An empty U-Haul.
1: Yeah, we just, and we just drove. I'm, I remember driving across country. We had like a boom box that we tied to the roof of the... U-Haul, because there was no tape player or anything, or CD player. And uh, we moved out here with, like, no plan. And she actually only lasted two weeks. She <laughs> left almost immediately. And I just stayed and had no real plan for a long time. I just was out, you know, at my You fir-
0: moved to Oakland?
1: I moved... Well, I moved to Berkeley. And I worked... My first job was... I think... First I worked at Ben & Jerry's. Then I sold newspapers as a telemarketer. Then I worked at an art supply store and then I I applied to college and got in and uh, got funding and stuff. So then I went, yeah, that's how, that's how I ended up in school. But it was really just, I didn't, I didn't know um, what I was going to do. I really, yeah, there's (laughs) a (laughs) a sort of tangled road from, from there to here, but
0: so California College of the Arts mm-hmm. in Oakland mm-hmm. gives you funding like was this a visual arts program or
1: yeah it was it, I actually didn't really have a major I made my own major well actually I was my major was visual studies but it didn't exist yet as a major it just had a name so you got to essentially create your own curriculum I mostly took painting and writing classes and um, yeah after school I had a short internship at small press distribution. And then from there I got uh, a job as the poetry buyer at city lights. And
0: how long did you work at city lights for?
1: Um, I think the first time I worked there was for three years. I worked there until I left for Iowa for grad school. Um, and then I worked there when I moved back to the Bay, I worked there sort of on call while I was, before I got hired at St. Mary's.
0: Like it's a hospital? Like we need you in?
1: Uh, well, they have like, you can work there uh, on call if you've worked there before. And they'll just like cover call you in for like a, it was during the holidays. So I would just come help with busy shifts and stuff.
0: So, okay. So you at some point decide you're going to apply to the Iowa Writers Workshop.
1: Yeah, I mean like it's interesting cuz I'm aware that I did, but I don't really remember making that decision. Like I think that I just had professors be kind of like, "Well, you should get an MFA." And I was like, "Well, okay, I guess." And I mean I do remember sitting in the basement of City Lights like at night cuz I used to work the 4 to midnight shift. And when it was slow, I remember like working on my applications there. Um and yeah, I didn't I wasn't I didn't have a lot of – I mean, I just pretty much, I think, I applied where my teachers told me to. Um, and I didn't really know much about the writer's workshop, actually.
0: What did you submit?
1: Poems. Just poems. But <laughs> po- Yeah. I mean, you just submit – you give a writing sample, and then you write an essay. Um I'm sure my essay was really terrible.
0: Uh, <laughs> well, you good enough to get you in. It's hard to get I, in.
1: I, yeah, they probably base it mostly in the writing sample. I don't know. I'm sure part of it is just luck, too. Did you
0: have good letters of recommendation?
1: Yeah, I'm sure I did. I mean, I don't know. From professors. I, I haven't read them. But yeah, no, I, I had really great professors at CCA who really, really encouraged me. Um, I mean, I think so much of like the way that my life has taken shape has honestly been from people older than me kind of like in just sort of being like almost like reaching down and be like, here, let me give you a hand or like, here, do this.
0: (laughs) That's nice though.
1: It is really nice. That
0: shit never happens to me.
1: It's happened to me a lot. I don't really know why, but it really is. It's been, it's, it's like, like things like that are actually truly responsible for a lot of the, the major shifts in my life is just honestly just people being like hey like do you want to do this like I've got a I've got a idea for you or like here's a thing I think you you'd be great at and I'm just like oh okay sure I'll give it, that it a shot it doesn't
0: sound like you're maneuvering for this stuff it's just no, happening
1: to I'm not. it's really it's 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 honestly it's been that's when people are like well how did you become put I'm like I really it seems like just sort of a series of of like external events <laughs> where other people just yeah just helped me
0: out so you go to iowa yeah by the way did you ever see did lawrence farrell and getty write you a, a recommendation he didn't write
1: me a recommendation uh he's you know he's pretty old
0: he's 150 he's, yeah yeah but
1: i mean the one conversation i remember having with lawrence about poetry was you, you know he said I, I think someone else in the store he doesn't come in there that much but he's there periodically and someone else in the store was like oh you know elaine's a poet she's going to the IR writers workshop and he's like well here's my advice forget the new yorker <laughs> that, that was what that's i think the only conversation we really had about, <laughs> about poetry
0: how but, do you feel about that advice
1: i mean i I did forget The New Yorker, <laughs> although I don't know if I honestly ever really thought of The New Yorker to begin with.
0: But Eventually, like David Remnick's going to call you and just be like, Elaine, <laughs> give me some poems.
1: Yeah. I, I mean, I you. think The New Yorker has like, I, I think they have a better poetry editor now than they may have at that point. I can't remember who it is, but I know that I have friends who've been published whose work I like, so...
0: Did you ever see any other? Who else did you see in City? I feel like City Lights is like a tourist destination.
1: It is a tourist destination.
0: Did you have any good stories of like people coming through that are recognizable?
1: Well, I remember one time Grace Jones' assistant coming in. It was right after Grace Jones' book came out, and um, we didn't carry her book at the time, and we were all like so mortified. And another person who came in one time actually, and this is I don't get starstruck very often. I'm not like a I don't I don't don't really. Truthfully, I don't know who most celebrities are or care, but John Waters came in one time. And that, I actually really did get starstruck. I just remember, I was like, he was just so graceful. The way that he moved, I was like, my God. (laughs) It's beautiful. (laughs) Yeah, no, really. Did you talk to him? Oh, no. But I... I actually ran into the bathroom and changed my outfit. That's actually true.
0: What did you change into?
1: I think I just like had a skirt in my bag, just like something more stylish city lights I used to always say is like the coldest place in all of the San Francisco Bay Area. It's just so cold, so I'd always wear to- lots of layers there and I Yeah, I think I just like ran into the bathroom and like put on a more stylish outfit,
0: (laughs) in hopes of what getting cast in the next. I have no
1: idea. I think I was just I was probably wearing you know like something kind of like frumpy, and I was just like I cannot have John Waters see me, (laughs) you know, like this. I worked I worked at a vintage store simultaneously, so I actually usually had like a lot like clothes on me, and I probably just like ran into the bathroom and put on a dress or something. Interesting.
0: Anybody else?
1: Um, not that I can think of. Um, yeah. All right. Well, so
0: then it's to Iowa. Yeah. So back to the Midwest.
1: Back to the Midwest, which I was, God, I was not excited about that. I will say I do love the Midwest, but after living in the Bay for that long, I was kind of like, uh, I don't know if I would, I don't really want to do that, but
0: was it that, because this is something I wrestle with, Uh, like, it's great to live in California. The weather's great. Mm -hmm. It's such a magnificently beautiful Mm -hmm. place. When you move back to Iowa, like after the initial, like, okay, I'm in Iowa. The aesthetic is different. It's flatter. It's the Midwest. It's cornfields or whatever. Is it really that much different?
1: Well, for me, honestly, it was a lot about the weather. Like Iowa is so cold it's just so cold in the winter. It's like being on another planet and I am always cold and grew up always being cold. And I think that was a big part of it for me was just not wanting to be back in the cold. And also, I don't know. I just had gotten used to like a certain kind of, um, you know, art community. But I mean, Iowa actually had a really wonderful scene itself. So, I mean, I'm, I ended up meeting a lot of my my best
0: friends who are you there. in school with
1: um i mean a lot of a lot of great writers uh justin torres his book "We the animals is was a big he's actually he's uh gonna be in conversation with me at my book launch at skylight um in a couple of weeks um i'm trying to think who else um I mean, lots of poets, Jane Gregory, Cody Rose Clevidence, Sarah Nicholson, C. Violet Eaton, Bridget Talon, um Allie Harris. I, I mean, tons of really amazing writers.
0: And was the the educational experience good for you? Do you feel like you really got better and it made a big difference?
1: I don't know if I would say, I mean, the IO Writers Workshop, they really give you, it's very, it's it's more like almost like a two-year-long residency or something like I don't it's not so much about instruction as just putting you in conversation with other writers and that absolutely made my writing better that and just like the amount of time you have on your hands is wild like everything you can walk everywhere life is really simple it's a fully funded program um so you just have I mean you're Only responsibility for me, my only responsibility was to teach one class a week and write one poem a week.
0: Where did you live?
1: In a house. I just rented an apartment.
0: Oh, you did? Okay. Yeah. I I don't know if they have like a, did they have like a special like garret for the writers or?
1: No. Yeah. I just, I remember my rent was $250. And this is not even that long ago. Damn. Like it's just, it's a very, it's a simple place to live. And I mean, I had trouble with the small town aspect of it. I've always, I think because I grew up in a small town, Really valued the ability to be anonymous, which doesn't really exist there. Right, but um, you know, I I definitely did. I you know I liked having things be simple, and I liked getting so much time to write.
0: Um, so did you put together a collection, or what did you What did you emerge from Iowa with?
1: I mean, I think I, I emerged from Iowa with um, I mean, like a lot of work that went into my first collection, and also I just think like sort of over. Over the course of the two years I was there, I, I just figured out a way to be myself in language that I hadn't had access to before. I think, I, mean, I think this is normal. A lot of early writing, you know, you're kind of like uh, writing in the style of people you like. Or
0: who are some of your heroes?
1: Um, i mean, like who are like the poets I really love. Yeah. Um, Amé Césaire, Sappho, H.D. Uh, Kama Braithwaite, um, Renee Ricard, um, I don't know. There's a Millie. <laughs> okay. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, yeah. And I think, of oh, C.D. Wright, she was really huge for me. I think she was someone who especially really affected some of my earlier writing. Um, but yeah, I think, I think I learned, I think my writing got so much. I mean, and I honestly think it wasn't even until the very end. Like, I sort of remember... At a certain point being like, oh, this, this is my writing. And I remember that feeling kind of for the first time. And it was really, it was really nice.
0: What what do you mean? Like, this is my voice. Like, this is how I do it.
1: Yeah. it, It just, it was, it was all of a sudden it felt like, it felt like me just being able to say what I meant, saying what I mean and saying it like in the rhythm like with the, the rhythm, the music that like felt right to my body, like talking about the things that I really was curious about. Um, and yeah, just it just all of a sudden I like I really do. I remember the feeling of being like, this is my, this is me talking. And that's really great.
0: Well, one of the things I noticed, like not only when I was reading your book, but when I was hearing you read is the um, the white space. Mm-hmm. And it's reflected in the read, like the, mm-hmm. the verbal read, like you really let there be a lot of silence, which I love. Um, like if I'm listening to somebody at a reading, especially a poet, but anybody, like whenever somebody lets silence just be there, like mm-hmm. that's powerful. Uh, yeah. And maybe it seems underutilized. People always want to kind of fill that space.
1: Yeah. I mean, one of the really important things for me when I read my writing is that I want to actually make sure i'm I'm connecting to what I'm saying. It can be easy to kind of just read your work without even paying attention to what you're saying, but that's not that doesn't feel good to me. That's not like a satisfying experience. So a lot of kind of like the pauses in my work are me just like actually feeling whatever it is I said and like remembering, recalling what I felt like when I first wrote it. And actually even, like, thinking about it. Um,
0: no, that makes sense. Like, being, like, actually, like, locked in and yeah. not just mindlessly doing it.
1: Yeah, no, exactly. But it's hard. It's hard, especially because, you know, like, a lot of people, I get nervous when I read. And that makes you kind of, like, black out in a way. But so that's why I have to kind of constantly pull myself back into my body.
0: So you're when when, when you're silent... You're coming out of a blackout is what you're saying. No,
1: <laughs> no, but I'm, I'm like gathering myself and I'm, I'm giving myself time to, to stay present, I guess.
0: So your collection is called Romance or the End. Did you mm. make the cover?
1: No, my friend Kim made the cover. Okay, Kim I Gordon. Love it.
0: It's like yeah. written for people who can't see it. It's like written by hand in like, it looks like watercolor.
1: Yeah, I think it's ink.
0: Okay. But it-
1: yeah, she did a really incredible job. I, I didn't give her any instruction, but like. It looks almost like it's a ransom note or something. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And I really, really liked that because there's, to me, there is like sort of an implicit threat in the title. And she really, she definitely got it.
0: Yeah, I was laughing as I was reading it because like at the front of the the book, there's like the blurbs or whatever. Mm -hmm. And uh, let's see, Eileen Miles says, this book is crazy and wonderful, like a basket full of snakes. Mm -hmm. Uh, Another blurb. It says like, like, I think that what I was laughing at was, as I was thinking like, no one's ever going to say anything like this about something that I write <laughs> with ro- We find romance pinned down with its skin peeled back and con is it's God. Um, let's see. Hang on. What was the other one? There's one here. I was just like, damn, not since Satan has anybody's little tongue given head this good in language. That's the one that I think that made me laugh. I was like, yeah, no one's ever going to say that about That's me.
1: That's Jane Gregory, who's an incredible poet who okay. I really recommend anyone checking out.
0: Well, maybe I'll reach out to Jane for a blurb she's, when she's I finish fantastic. my book.
1: Fantastic. Yeah. But uh, no, I, f- I don't love blurbs, but I felt I got really good blurbs for the book.
0: No, they're great. And it's a necessary evil. Like, yeah. we all hate it, but yeah. like, you kind of need them. Yeah. Um, this book feels, I was obviously concerned with uh, relation, human mm-hmm. relationships. Um, I don't mean to like read in between the lines too much, but it's like, is this like a breakup collection? Like, or is it like struggling with like uh, trying to make sense? I don't want to make you decode your poetry. I
1: appreciate that actually. I mean, it's, it was written during like a certain period in my life when I think I was experiencing a lot of disorder. I mean, it's absolutely about like, you know, it's sort of like the autopsy of like, a romantic- a romantic um trajectory, but it's like things just felt sort of disconnected and fractured, and like I couldn't connect to the story of my life anymore, and so I wanted to write a book that kind of put them back into order, put things back into order um so that's really where this book came from is is like a desire to make a story out of something that just felt like it didn't have a narrative to me.
0: Like it's like, like fractured pieces or something that feel disparate and like, maybe like trying to make a puzzle out of it or something.
1: Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it just, I, I don't know. There was just sort of a series of, of, of things that happened in my life that just truly made no sense. Like just made no sense.
0: Like relationship wise or just like, like, um, Existentially speaking? Like,
1: I mean it was it was a lot of things. Um it wasn't just one thing. It was I was going through a breakup, but it was a breakup that was sort of prompted by something that happened in my personal life that was you know, deeply painful and um I hate the word traumatic, but it was definitely traumatic and um it was actually at the same time that there was also a lot of death in my world. Um it was
0: like friends or family or?
1: Friends. Um, it was around the time of the ghost ship fire. I don't know if you're familiar. In Oakland, there was this fire in a warehouse and 32 people were killed. It was during a show. There was like a music show. Oh, right. Um, And it was just.
0: You knew people in there? Yeah. Ugh.
1: It was just part of, you know, their, it, I'd lived in the Bay for a long time. So there, I was, you know, some of the people I knew personally, some of them I'd just seen at shows and readings for years, but um i had a couple of other friends die sort of on either side of that and then trump was elected and it really just was a time where i i thought for a while like i might live in hell like honestly like it was just so many really awful things happening um that i yeah i just i i became disconnected from from what was going on in my life. And I just like, I wanted to put it back together. And I think that like, yeah, it's through this book, like, it's, you know, it's not like it, it fixed anything or made things easier, but it was as an exercise, I think it gave me, you know, some sense of peace, and helped me feel a little bit more just even like I could look at what happened just like look at it and be like okay well that's that's the story of it that's what happened this is the through line um and I think poetry was probably the only way I could have done it because poetry like it's not like it has narrative but it's not like a conventional narrative so it kind of lets you use You know, we were talking before about spaces in between. It lets you use space as a place for connection to be made. Like, there's story in the spaces. And it lets you kind of, like, you know, get at a reality that's not um, not as, like, maybe that couldn't be said clearly using just, like, traditional prose. Because I think reality is actually quite warped. And uh, I think poetry really makes space for for that kind of like just warp that like weirdness. Uh, that to me feels really honest.
0: You know what's coming to mind for me is like you talk about human relationships and loss and grief and breakups and all of its of a piece. It's just how fucking weird it is.
1: Really fucking weird.
0: Like, first of all, losing people is just weird. Like that. Yeah. Like, oh my god, they're gone. They yeah. were here, and now they're gone.
1: It's incomprehensible to me. Yeah. It's something I remember the first time I lost someone in my life. Like, I remember just being like, I don't understand.
0: When was that? Were you, were you a kid or
1: the first? Um, the first time that like I feel like I experienced death of in a way that I mean, really, you know, like my grandma died when I was like five or something, you know. But I a lot of people. I knew growing up in Chicago were involved. I don't know if you've ever heard of the Chicago porch collapse accident, no. which was this big accident in Chicago where a bunch of people were at a party and in Chicago, all the apartments have like these wooden porches. Oh, I out. did hear that. Yeah. So that was a lot of people I went to high school with.
0: Oh, how many people died?
1: I, I think it was either 11 or 12. I can't remember, but it was a lot of people I'd went to high school with and people I had known. And that
0: was... But not even necessarily great friends with.
1: No, no, I mean, there were you know there were like there were people I had definitely been friends with and like hung out with, but no, they weren't like my best friends. It was more just like there were people who were a part of my world, people I knew and hung out with and um you know saw in the halls and stuff, yeah, yeah. and it just was this moment of kind of like realizing like you know you think like um the ground beneath your feet is solid, but it might not be. And, and I think especially at that time, because we were, you know, I think I was 20 when that happened. So it was after high school, but you know, these were people who were young and alive and like vigorous. Like I remember one of the people I knew who who was killed was the, actually someone my brother wrestled with. They were on like the wrestling team together and he was like six, five and like, Really, really strong, and I just remember being like, "I don't understand. Like, he's so strong. <laughs> like, his body is so, you know, vital. Yeah, exactly." Right. And I just kind of was like, "How? I don't. I just like. I literally couldn't comprehend it. Um,
0: yeah." And isn't it weird? Okay, so it's kind of like a twofold comment, but like, I, I carry. I, you carry the dead with you. Even the, pe- the people that you've lost or people have died at proximity to you. You don't even have to necessarily have a strong personal relationship with them, but they're part of your reality. Mm-hmm. And so then when they die, there's something poignant in it. And I can sometimes be like, am I feeling this too much? Am I, am still like people that died years and years ago who like, you know, I knew, but I didn't know all that well. I still think about them. Yeah. And then breakups i never dated a lot so i don't have like a a long string of breakups in my past i was terrible at dating like i just (laughs) was i was just alone yeah um but uh but when you do break up with somebody that too is like a death. Oh, absolutely. Like I, there's some of people are like, well, I'm still the best friends with my ex. And I'm like, wow, that's well, amazing. Even
1: if you're still best friends with your ex, like the love you shared is dead. Right. <laughs> and I mean, honestly, it's like, I've sometimes thought of it that way. It's like this, like love that was between the two of you. It's like a third body. And like, then it it's dead and you have to grieve that. And you know, I have exes I'm still really close with and others that I'm not, but like,
0: I still, I still very much care about everybody I ever dated. Yeah. Like, I think you care extra for people that you date. You should. Yeah. That seems like a natural thing to do. Like, you want them to be well. I think also, it's like that impulse to be like, oh, I wish we could still be, like, just check in with each other and be, like, friendly. But maybe that's, like, a need for, like, absolution. You know how you want people to make you feel all right about things that might not have gone well or... I guess it could work two ways, but mm-hmm. I'm a, I'm a person who's like, I wish we could just like send a note to say, Hey, or,
1: yeah, I mean, I, I am like rough, you know, sort of in touch on some level with pretty much every, I, I mean, I haven't dated that much. I've mostly had like long term relationships, but I'm, you know, in some degree of contact with pretty much everybody. Um, you know, some, some more than others. Cause I think there's just
0: well, I guess social media, maybe if you're still like linked up there.
1: Yeah. I mean, that to me, that's not a great way to actually keep in touch with exes. <laughs> I, I mean, I, I value
0: just fave their tweets, man.
1: No, I mean, I, I value like letting people fade into the past, truly, especially people I've like dated. Like, I don't necessarily like need to like, you know, I don't know.
0: Yeah, maybe I don't either. I guess like what I'm <laughs> saying, though, like, is that the part of it that feels like a heartache to me is like they kind of die yeah and you kind of die to them it's like death it's like yeah. they're gone like you were at one point close mm-hmm. and your lives were intermingled and then they diverge and you never fucking see them again really yeah or talk to them or even know what happened to them
1: yeah that's well, wild. yeah i mean i i do like i said i do i do tend to know what happened to them but the thing that i think dies is like yeah it's like the love you share that is dead and like they're the only person you can like mourn it with because they're the only person you knew that it existed um
0: Do you ever and, google people like you're googling your exes like what are they doing like
1: Um I mean I don't really need to google most of my exes <laughs> <laughs> well cuz I like I said I am you know in like sort of in in loose touch with most of them Right um but yeah I mean I definitely you know I'm like a total spy. Like I def- I definitely <laughs> like will occasionally like pry into into the lives of people I've I haven't talked to in a long time. I think social media really does sort of breed that. I'm over it. Yeah.
0: I've been over it, but I'm still on it. Yeah. I'm over it but I'm on it. Yeah. But I'm only on one.
1: I I don't know. A social media I, I have mixed feelings about because I actually like it in a lot of ways. Uh, Do you I,
0: use it for your poetry?
1: Sometimes, but mostly I just, I don't know, like, I like making little videos and, like, I like jokes and I like taking pictures of myself. Like, that's stuff that's really fun for me. And I actually, I don't, like, I'm not one of those people, I don't actually spend that much time on social media. I'm just kind of like, oh, this was funny to me and, like, post it and then,
0: like, bolt. So you're not an addict?
1: No, I mean, no, I don't, I I'm not one of those people who like, like one of the things I hear people talk about is like, you know, looking at other people's lives and kind of being like, Oh, like why isn't my life like this or feeling? And I don't, I tend to only really follow people that I'm like friends with and actually know. And I just don't engage with it in that way. I mostly just kind of like, honestly, I like like memes and
0: selfies. Just gifts or whatever. Yeah.
1: I like, I like, I like internet humor and I use it now because it's, I mean, it's how I tend to get students for my classes.
0: So that's what you're doing? You're doing private workshop, poetry workshops?
1: Yeah, I started a I started a poetry school called Poetry Field School, and I teach classes online and also occasionally out of my apartment. And yeah, it's like because I get I, students mostly find me through Instagram. So I, I kind of can't go off it. Damn. Yeah. You're locked in. A little bit.
0: So, now, anyway. w- how long ago were you at Iowa? Like, what's the like, what's the uh, span of time between like leaving Iowa and then coming back to Cal? Like, what happened? You came back to California.
1: I, I left Iowa in 2010, and then I actually moved to Western Mass for two and a half years. Why? Uh, because I had uh, friends who lived there who they're musicians, and they like lived in this big house, and they basically told me I could come live with them for free and finish writing my. Uh, My book. um, Which was? Women in Public. Okay. That was my first book. It was published by City Lights. Um, And yeah, so that's why I moved there originally. And then I actually really injured myself. I was working at a coffee shop and ruptured a disc in my spine. Doing what? Carrying a freshly watered banana plant. (laughs) A banana tree. Um, And Massachusetts at that time was the only place that had Healthcare, like it was the only place that had like affordable care act. So I stayed basically because it was the only place I could get treatment. And I was, I was like, I had a limp for like a year. Like I was really messed up.
0: Which like lower lumbar or what do you call it? My
1: L5 S1. Yeah. It was bad. I had really, really bad sciatica. It was terrible. You had surgery? No, I didn't. I, but I did a lot of physical therapy Mm -hmm. and it was a really just slow, process.
0: Back injuries suck.
1: They're terrible. It was, I mean, that was a total turning point in my life actually, because I'd always been like a pretty healthy active person. And that was a moment where I was like, Oh, I really have to like take care of my body or it will stop. Working. That's right. And I love to be able to like use my body. Me and, like, too. Do whatever I, you know. I still do cartwheels all the time. Like I just like it's so important to me. And it was.
0: Sometimes I'm like, is this a, like I struggle with this because it's it's like a hugely important part of my life. Yeah, me too. I like to. I, if I can't move, and like be vital. I'm like, ugh. Like, no,
1: I, I feel the same.
0: Drives me crazy. Yeah. But I'm like, is that a vanity? Am I putting too much like? It's a big priority of every day of my life.
1: I, mean, I think it's about joy. Like you have your body, like that's a it's can they can be wonderful sources of pleasure and like just freedom. And when I, you know when I had my injury and really couldn't move with with like pleasure or freedom like it was really depressing and i don't want to live like that if possible yeah i'd like to stave it off for as long as i can
0: um yeah the way I, i'm like listen i'm not expecting that i have some kind of guarantee yeah that i'm going to live to be 112 yeah but at least like the quality of my life while it's about, i am yeah, here i is, think
1: it's about quality much more than longevity for me certainly and like i my mom's uh she's you know 70 or whatever i can't remember but she's uh really serious athlete she is rose crew and like you know she still races in the head of the charles and like i think she got like fourth in the head of the charles a couple years ago so and i see that she i mean she still does cartwheels like she still like moves around all Go the time mom. yeah no i mean it's um it's like i see her compared to other people i his parents who like you know can't walk
0: right well and, and so, she always did stuff like
1: yeah you, she's always been really active she see? just it's really and she actually she always nagged me to exercise when i was younger And i was like Ugh, no you know but then uh, when i hurt myself i was like oh this is not just about vanity this is not about like weight loss it's, it's like about,
0: play, no it's like playing the long game
1: yeah it's about like you know watering your plants it's like you know you got if you don't put effort into something it doesn't thrive and i, I want my body to be healthy
0: I think that's a fine aspiration. Uh, okay. So Western mass, uh, slip disc or ruptured Mm -hmm. disc. Yeah. Finally you get better. Yeah. And you're like, I'm out of here. Yeah. (laughs) Mic drop. Like I fixed my bag. Thanks Massachusetts. (laughs) Yeah.
1: A little bit. Yeah. Yeah. I loved Western mass actually. It's an interesting place, but it, yeah, I, I had wanted to move back to the bay. So I did, I moved back to the bay and, uh, yeah, initially worked at City Lights again like I was saying, just kind of on call and then i got a job at St. Mary's and that was my first kind of like adult job and teaching. Um actually I was a program assistant and I did do some teaching too, but I was mostly an administrator um and an academic counselor. But um yeah. And then I yeah.
0: And how did you wind up down here?
1: Um, so my friend Kim, who actually did the cover, who did the cover to my book and who actually is the person who I lived with in Western Massachusetts, um, she moved here. Her and her husband had split up um, while I was living with them on Western Mass, which is a whole other story. And uh, she lived here and I had broken up with my partner and my world was just like, falling apart
0: like oh that was when the yeah the, the fire happened and all that. yeah that, so. it
1: was just everything was just i mean i just like i mean and i also mean and my partner had worked together we lived together like i had was like i just need to get out of here um and kim was like just just come live with me you can just come stay with me um so i just came down here and stayed with her that's that's kind of another way of what I mean. Like, my life has been shaped by you know people like older people like with more resources and power than me. Just kind of been like, here, just do this. <laughs> like, I honestly feel like at that time I let Kim and my mom just kind of like decide. what I, I was just like, I have no idea, and they're like, just do this. And I was I'm like, gonna call okay, Kim, I'm going
0: to call Kim and your mom and have them <laughs> advise me.
1: I mean, I don't know if it worked out, but I'm doing okay right now. So <laughs>
0: yeah, and how long have you been here?
1: I've been here. Um, well, the first few months out was here is was pretty off and on, but it's been about three years.
0: Yeah. Okay. Yeah. I like, I like you know, I, this is I've had this conversation more than once recently, so I don't want to beat it to death. But like, you've lived in the Bay, you've lived in LA. Yeah. Is it okay? Do you feel okay about L.A.? I like
1: LA a lot better.
0: Do you? Much. Why?
1: <sighs> I mean, part of it is just livability. The Bay has become a very hard place to live. That's like, right. Yeah. Housing there is just. It's just really, it's it's almost like violence. What's what's happening? Um, um, that's that's. I feel like honestly one of the main reasons. I don't know. I also just, I like. I don't know.
0: If you if you value anonymity, LA is the place for you. That that's true.
1: <laughs> I mean, I do. I have a lot of love for the Bay, and there's things I miss a lot about it. Like it's wonderful to be able to go to this beautiful coastlines so easily like i used to go to the marin headlands like once a week
0: it's gorgeous it's incredible on a perfect day it's perfect
1: yeah and you can get there i could get there in like 35 minutes like it was just simple um but like i don't know I, i think there's something just very beautiful about los angeles to me too like i love palm trees and the sunsets and the architecture i think it's a really beautiful city visually um
0: in spots, it is. It's yeah. like breathtaking. Yeah, I was just thinking too. Like I go hiking early. Mm-hmm. I'm up at dawn, and uh, I'm so I'm on like that. Like I was thinking about this. Like there's a crew of people in los angeles who do that circuit
1: i i like know some of those people yeah do
0: you because yeah. like, i don't know them but i see them every day Yeah,
1: no i know people who that's like their routine is they're up like at dawn hiking
0: i call it, it's like dawn patrol but i'm like mm. who like there's a certain group of us who it's for some cool. reason are up here wandering around in the dark yeah um but it's just spectacularly beautiful some mornings you're yeah. like wow and to have mountains like right here in the city Not like 30 minutes away, but like you're in the city. I mean, I
1: live at like the foothill of Griffith Park. Like, yeah, yeah.
0: that's pretty special.
1: Yeah, it is. I don't take advantage of it as much as I should, but it is.
0: Yeah. So, uh, aside from, you know, obviously this book's out in print and you've got your, uh, workshops and stuff going Mm -hmm. on, but are you working on new poems or what are you writing?
1: Um, I'm, I mean, I'm always kind of writing my my writing process isn't super straightforward. A lot of it's just taking notes. Um,
0: Older people telling you when you should write. (laughs) No, This is the poem you should write.
1: (laughs) No, but it is, it is a lot of just taking notes right now. I mean, the thing is I write as a way of, of understanding more than anything. And I think I'm still kind of figuring out what my next questions are. Not to say that the questions in this book were answered, but I have different concerns now and I don't think I've fully identified them. And part of how I write is to kind of like look at my notes and be like, oh, this is, this is what I'm asking. This is what I'm trying to figure out. Um, And it's also, it's honestly, it's a little bit hard to write. um, When you have a book about to come out, there's a way that I kind of like, oh, I felt a little bit like I can't, I can't start a new project till, no. till this one's done. I
0: think it's fine. I mean, like there's like the whole chain smoking theory where it's like, just go from one creative project to the next and never stop. Yeah. And it's a way of life. I get it. But I also think like, sometimes you have a project, you see it through to completion, you celebrate the you know publication of it or whatever you do the tour, you come talk to people like me and yeah. then you move on to the next thing eventually.
1: I mean, I, yeah, I don't, I don't ever really feel pressure to write. It's like, I just know that I, I will write when I need to. And I mean, if I don't need to write anymore, that's fine with me is the truth. Like that's, I don't, it's not like, it's not something that it's, you know, and that's one of the wonderful things about like,
0: that's interesting to hear you say that. And I think it's, uh, I think it's cool. We put a lot of pressure, people can put a lot of pressure on themselves to write, especially once they've self-identified as a writer.
1: Yeah. I mean, I still don't exactly self-identify as a writer. I think of myself as an artist and like language is the medium I use, but it's not, yeah, like I don't, I don't really, and I don't even really feel like, I, I just feel like I'm a person kind of trying to, trying to like, uh, Figure out how to how to how to live, and writing is a part of that for me right now. But if other things come up that like help me understand that more, I'm I have no qualms about pursuing those those subjects. Um,
0: That's good. You give yourself some freedom.
1: Yeah. Sure. Yeah.
0: And uh, you're taking care of your back. How's your back?
1: It's fine, actually. I mean, I have some pretty horrible re- repetitive stress things from. Writing, but my back's my back's good.
0: What do you do? Do you do like is like? I mean, I know you're active, but like, are you doing like Pilates and stuff? I do
1: bar. Bar. I love bar class.
0: You have good posture.
1: (laughs) Thank you. People (laughs) tell my mom we're all tall in my family, and it was really important to my mom because so many tall women hunch that she was. She used to have me and my sister. She would put on merch of the. Valkyries and say big women strong women and have us like, <laughs> walk around the kitchen table and she really impressed upon me that it's like you know it's fine to be a woman and like stand tall and oh
0: yeah yeah what about uh, what about bar classes that's like ballet
1: I mean it's very loosely ballet it's it's really kind of I would say more like a mixture of pilates and yoga but I I don't I just kind of got into it when I moved here and I really like it. It tends to be all women, which is nice. And should I was going
0: to say, should I do this?
1: I mean, you can. There are men, but it is mostly women. But I just I don't know. The, it's car- the studio I go to. It's carpeted, and for some reason, I really like that. It makes me feel like a little kid, like like on the living room floor or something. Like they
0: have like what pure bar?
1: Yeah, I use the bar method. I really like it. Is
0: it? I mean, is it? Are you just like wrecked when you get out of there? It seems like it. I mean,
1: it's hard. Um, I mean, I do it. I do it a lot. So you know. Like anything, your body adjusts, but I think it keeps me like in pretty good shape, and I actually walk places a lot too.
0: Yeah, that's good.
1: Yeah, and I'm just I'm like just a pretty active person. I don't, I don't. Yeah, I I like moving. So
0: well, this conversation has followed a track that um, I was hoping it would. I wanted to start with poultry and I wanted to end with (laughs) bar and core strength. Yeah, Um, but it's been really fun talking to you, meeting a fellow Midwesterner. Uh, And a fellow Los Angelino. We Mm -hmm. both wound up out here. Yeah. And I always love hearing people's stories of how they got here. I guess mine's kind of boring. It was like grad school.
1: Did you come out? Did you study writing? Yeah. Where? At USC. Uh, That's where my boyfriend went. He studied screenwriting.
0: Oh, yeah. Okay, yeah. So it's like, I don't know. I guess there's that track. But people slide into this place um, and just get stuck.
1: (laughs) I certainly never expected to move to LA. Me neither. And like. I really like. As soon as I'd been living here for a little while, I was like, I wish I'd moved down here earlier. And this is really not to slander the Bay. It just this it it suits me more here. I it is. I like having space, and I do like having anonymity. And those are things that are more possible here. And
0: just like tons of access to bar classes everywhere.
1: (laughs) For real, yeah. (laughs) Anywhere you look. (laughs) Anywhere you look. Yeah.
0: Uh, Well, Elaine, it's great to meet you, and uh, congratulations uh, on your collection. Where can people find you if they wanted to take your classes online?
1: Um, Well, I have an Instagram. Well, actually, my website is probably the best, which is uh, poetryfieldschool.com. And then my Instagram is Um, (laughs) pure.moods, which is a handle I came up with a long time ago, but still still remains. um, So those are the two best ways. Yeah.
0: All right. Well, uh, thank you for taking the time to come talk with me, and best of luck to you. Thank you. Alright folks, there you go That is Elaine Kahn Her poetry collection is called Romance or the End It is available now from Soft Skull Press You can find Elaine online Her website is ElaineKahn.org And her uh, Twitter handle is At P underscore Splash Artist What do you think about that? P underscore Splash er, At P underscore Splash Artist I don't know what that means go find out Elaine Kahn Romance or the End available from Soft Skull Press go get your copy right now if uh, you would like to write to me again the address is letters at otherppl.com if you like the program and you want to support it throw a few bucks in the hat you can do that at patreon.com slash otherpplpod don't forget all episodes of this program are available to you for free they are offered freely so if you like the show support the show If uh, you want to get the app, the official Other People with Brad Listy app, the app is free. Everything's free. Go get the app wherever you get your apps. It's a good app. Uh, What else? What am I forgetting? I can't remember what I'm forgetting. Next week on the program, I have Amina Kane back uh, after a few years away. She's got a new novel out from FSG. I just read it. I love talking with her. So stay tuned for Amina Kane. And uh, we're going to close it out with another poem from Elaine Kahn from her collection, Romance or the End. I told you it was going to happen, and now it's going to happen. And guess what this poem is called? It's called I Told You I Was Sick. Okay? So let's do it. This is Elaine Kahn reading from her collection, Romance or the End, and the name of this poem is I Told You I Was Sick.
1: The innocents all dress the same. Their mouths open, their mouths close, they flush and bleed. And wonder where they are, happy to be leaving, hesitant, and unprepared for the departure when it comes to them, like penicillin. Are you pinching yourself? What I want and how I want it. That is what they told me. They were right. Skin is just like fabric, and All violence is in defense of something. I lay on my back and wish. I do that now. I wish for good things, all the good, good things. Why not? Fabric rolls out like a cloud of paint, a moan into a square of gauze. I don't know. And so, I write about it. I care about life and the ones who never say a thing. We are in the hands of providence, who is unqualified. There are those who would protect us from the possibility of good.